Well, I want to continue on in worship this morning. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. We're in a summer sermon series in the little book of Jonah. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. We'll be in chapter 3, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Here's a song. You can get there. Or you can cheat and use the table of contents, whatever. I wonder, when was the last time you changed your mind? I wonder if, if you can remember a time when you changed your mind, not just about whether that shirt was working for you or not, but like something actual, a bit more character, a bit more fundamental to you and how you live your life. It actually took me quite a while to realize, it took me quite a while to remember a time that I had actually changed my mind recently. Or, or let, me, let me put some more uh, meat on this bone. When was the last time you realized you were wrong and said so? Now, right now, all the spouses are going, yeah, when are you going to say that? <laughs> when was the last time you realized you were wrong and realized that you needed to rethink your thinking? It's actually a part of the fundamental human condition. Foundationally, part of what it means to be human is the capacity to change your mind. It's this word we say in church all the time, repentance, and sometimes it can kind of get lost in all the churchianity, but repentance is a massive, massive word. It's been taught at times through churches or Bible studies that repentance is a military term. It comes from the military notion of walking one way and then repenting you about face and you do go the other direction. That's a good illustration. It's incomplete. It is metanoia in the Greek. Meta is to change. Noia, mind. You change your mind. You used to think something, but then either new facts, new experiences, new feelings, new learnings or understandings entered into the equation, and now you think this. I used to think that and thus about them. Now I think this about that. That's repentance. And repentance certainly matters in our conversion experience at some point, in some way, perhaps, you remember this, perhaps you don't. Maybe for you it was something like, I used to think that Jesus was just one of many pathways up the proverbial spiritual mountain. But now I think that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. But through him, no one else comes to the Father. That's repentance. Or maybe you repent from saying, I used to think that Jesus was this nice man, good teacher, pathetic martyr that people told stories about to children or other gullible adults. I used to think that, but now I believe, I am persuaded that he is Lord, he is king, and I live my life as though that's true. That's a form of repentance. Or maybe I used to think Jesus was kind of like this really rocking awesome superhero that he was available to help me out from time to time, but I'll do the important things. I'll call on you when I need you. But now I realize, no, he is a very present help in all my time of need, and he is with me, and I am indwelled by his spirit. That's repentance. As it turns out, repentance is a foundational, fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. Now, you might be asking, I am already a Christian. What, what do I have to repent of? I don't know. Ask your spouse. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll wait. No, I'm not here. All kinds of things, all of us have to always be repenting. Maybe you're not a Christian. You're wondering, well, what do, what do I have to repent of? I don't know exactly, but there's something. 
Which reminds me of one of our good friends around the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. His name is Mark Schwartzkopf. Perhaps you've met Mark. Perhaps you've just seen him sort of haunting the three buildings of this campus. He always wears black, except on Easter, he wears green. Watch for it. Mark is our director of operations, and he does essentially everything. He maintains our HVAC systems. He helps clean the floors. He takes care of our bathrooms. He makes sure that all the sound equipment and all the computers are repaired and working in perfect order. He also is working a foundry shift behind the bar as I speak. He takes care of and trains up all of our baristas on how to use all of our equipment. And when they get it wrong, not if, when we get it wrong, Mark's favorite thing to do in the cosmos. Nothing brings him more fulfillment. Nothing gives him more exploding joy than to call someone to repentance. <laughs> Particularly me and Mike. It just, it just, you can just see his endorphins just blow out when he calls me or Mike to repentance. He's never had to call Ashley to repentance, but he loves to do so. And he has an expression that's become pretty common around here. And so in Mark's honor what he likes to remind us of all the time, is actually our big idea this morning. And it goes like this. Repentance is a party to which we're all invited. And if you've spent any time with Mark in any capacity, he will delightfully point out <laughs> your invitation to the party of repentance because we're all invited. And the party lights are always on. It never closes. So with that, we want to go to the book of Jonah. We want to talk through the book of Jonah and see how this is a wonderful little chapter to talk to us through, to tell us about repentance. I just want to remind you, we are in the book of Jonah. It's a minor prophet. It's the only one of the prophets that is essentially completely narrative. There's only one prophetic oracle statement in the entire book, and that's in the chapter that we're going to look at today. Jonah, it's critical to understand interpretively, Jonah, the person He's not the good guy in the story. God's the good one in the story. God's the protagonist. Jonah is the antagonist. Jonah's name means dove. He was a prophet. Jonah is representative. He is the personification of the nation of Israel. How Israel was to have conducted themselves in the world. How they would have gone to the nations to spread the love, the light, the message of their God. You go through the book of Jonah and you realize... It's a microcosm of the entire Bible. It's got all the cycles. There's God, there's people, there's sin, and so there's judgment, but there's a savior, and then there's ascending. That's the little book of Jonah sandwiched right in the middle of your Old Testament. It's got it all. Now, it's a famous book because of the story of the fish swallowing a prophet, but there's so much more to it. What we learn through the book is that it's a God who is gracious, a prophet who is graceless, and a relentless mission to reach the nations with the love of God, whether they're in Catalonia or Sierra Leone, West Africa, or in Greece, or in Paraguay, wherever they might be. And so the theme of Jonah, our thrust, is God's relentless grace. Now, Jonah was a real historical figure. He's not just a myth. He's not just a legend. Jonah was an actual prophet, which means he spoke to the king on behalf of God in an official governmental capacity. In 2 Kings 14, we're told that he goes to see King Jeroboam II, who was a bad dude. He was an idolater. He was practicing heinous worship practices that God expressly prohibited. But by God's grace, he sends Jonah to go to Jeroboam II and say, hey, your borders of Israel, they're going to expand, they're going to increase. You're gonna have more resources, more power, more influence. They're gonna to grow to the size of what they were during the reign of King Solomon. And God does it. And Jonah liked that message. He was a patriot. He loved hearing that message. But then God said, I want you to go to Nineveh because their evil has stacked up against me. 
I want you to go east to Nineveh. Jonah says, right, gotcha. And Jonah goes, whoop, and he goes west. 2,500 miles he heads to Spain. Doesn't make it there. God sends a huge storm. They finally have to throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a fish. He's in there three days. He finally gets vomited back out on dry land. But in the belly of the fish, we get to experience and enjoy what I like to call Psalm 151, where Jonah rhythmically, poetically, and in verse demonstrates his repentance, his recognition of who God is, what God is like, and what God has done. So there we go. Jonah is now vomited back into the land of Israel. We're going to pick up and read chapter 3. I'm going to read all the way through it. It's very quick. Then we'll unpack it and we'll see if we can apply it. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from evil, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. It's all about repentance. We're going to see three different people repent or change their minds in this little narrative. First of all, Jonah. Jonah repents. Jonah changes his mind. Then we're going to see the Ninevites. They repent. They change their mind. Then, perhaps most shocking of all, God repents. God changes his mind. So Jonah, the Ninevites, and then finally God. Stay put. It's a very interesting uh, chapter to explain to us some very important things. Now, I want to remind you, in ancient Israel, the king was to rule righteously. He was to be a demonstration of the coming attraction of when Messiah would finally come to earth and rule his kingdom literally, logistically, on earth. The king was supposed to rule with righteousness, but they never did a good job. Certainly in the north, never once did a northern king do a good job. And so when the kingdom was slipping and not obeying the law of Moses, well, they would send the priests. The priests established a system whereby they could practice conduct sacrifice where something innocent would die violently for the sake of the guilty. And that's what kept the priests going. But by the time of Jonah and the other prophets, Amos and Hosea, even the priests were corrupt. And so God has to send prophets to preach, to declare to the whole nation there is violence. There is perverse worship of idols. There is all kinds of depravity happening. Jonah was one of those prophets, and he had a good track record. He was successful. He told Jeroboam something great would happen, and it did. And so he's told, go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. But this time, after three days in the belly of the fish, writing a psalm of repentance, the fish pukes out Jonah on dry land and astonishingly 
God just picks right back up, pulls him right back to task. Chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's amazing to me. Like I figured God would be like, there's a prophet, they're a dime a dozen. I can get them from any seminary you want. I just, I don't, somebody else. No, Jonah, I gave you a job to do. You're a part of my plan. You are a person with which I'm familiar. And he puts him right back on task. It's like Jonah gets out of the fish, pats free willy goodbye, walks up, and then God kind of says like, all right now, let's see, where were we? Oh, that's right. You're supposed to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's standing there smelling like a Long John Silver's bathroom, like, ah, okay, time to go, I guess. Go preach against it. There's an interesting difference. Here in the third chapter, God does not say, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah's well aware of the evil that had come up. This evil is rah in Hebrew. It's just two little letters, rah. You had a little oh at the end of it, rah. And it has the idea of, of wickedness, evil, violence, aimed at another. It's, it's not just dark thoughts, or it's not just crossing the street on Broadway when the light's not green. Not that you'd ever do it. It has the idea of horizontal, systemic, perhaps, social, rah, evil, wickedness, and violence. He doesn't add that this time because Jonah still knows this. And we're going to find out in chapter 4, Jonah still doesn't really want to go but he's going to have to go because God's going to deal with him that way. Now, super briefly, I mentioned this last week. Now I need to unpack it just a little bit more. Last week, we talked about what was going on in the belly of the fish. What was that like? Surely Jonah was somewhat affected physically by that much time in the belly of the fish. I mentioned an instance where in 1891, near the Falkland Islands, a guy named James Blakely was swallowed by a whale. His Crew members didn't know it. They killed the whale. They opened him up. They finally opened up the belly. And there was this dude who'd been there for a couple days. This guy was completely bleached white. He had no hair and he was blind for the rest of his life. Kind of like what our kids made this morning. You see this? This is actually Lazarus, but I was like, oh, it's Jonah coming out of the whale. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. We get no indication from the text that he was bleached or that he was glowing. I like the story. It would be really cool for Jonah to just walk into Nineveh, glowing white, just, I mean, smooth as a peeled otter and smelling of fish bile. But we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. Besides, from where Jonah is on dry land, it's 550 miles to Nineveh. That's a 30-day walk if you're moving quickly. So he's probably dried off and changed by then. So I don't know if that's why there is such an impact when he gets to the city of Nineveh. I don't know, but there's more. There's really interesting. The people of Nineveh were prepared for the word of the Lord. It just so happened that just that year, They had gone through not one, but two massive famines. Perhaps you remember a time when the world was in a position and a posture and a perception of scarcity. I've never seen so many fingernails out going for toilet paper at Sam's as there were during COVID. When a famine strikes, people go crazy trying to protect their families and their communities. Well, not once, but two massive famines had hit in Nineveh and in Assyria in that year. Not only that, they had had a massive earthquake. It was absolutely devastating to the city. They were in the process of rebuilding. And then not only that, that same exact year, they had had a complete and total solar eclipse, June 15th, 763 BC. So they all assumed that the gods were mad at them for something. Not only that, 
the chief deity of the people of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria, the chief deity was a false god named Dagon. Perhaps you've heard of Dagon. Dagon is a fish god. So when they hear a story about a giant sea monster fish spitting out a Jewish prophet who's now telling them to repent, and he maybe is white and fishy, that gets their attention. And not only that, this was a relatively small region of the world. They had swapped stories as all their merchants and all their travelers. They would have known the stories of the God of Israel and what he allegedly had done. They would have known the stories of the children of Israel coming up out of Egypt. Egypt and Assyria were arch bitter rivals. They would have heard that story. They would have heard the story of God bringing the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, stopping up the waters. Again, Dagon was defeated in that case. They would have heard the stories of the walls of Jericho coming down. They would have even heard the story of a young shepherd king named David who defeated the Philistines. Why would that have been a big deal? Because the Philistines' chief god was also named Dagon. You might remember the story in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into their temple next to Dagon. The next morning they go in and Dagon's face down and his head's been removed. That's a tip-off. So Dagon and their understanding has already been defeated. And so now this guy shows up and he says, it's time to repent. So their hearts are perfectly ready for what God's gonna do. Verse two, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. <laughs> I love that God has to add that in there. Jonah, go and preach the message that I tell you. You don't get to just make it up. By the way, that's good preaching. We don't get just get to say, this is what I think God says. Thus says the Lord. Jonah, go and tell those people the message that I'm telling you. Because don't you know, Jonah would have been like, hey, God says he wants you to all climb in a microwave and just put it on high. No, Jonah, you don't get to say that. God loves these people. That's the kind of God that he is. He really and truly does want relationships with people that don't deserve it because he knows it is the most foundational and fundamental need of a human being is to have right standing before a holy God. Even Ninevites, even East Texans, and that's really good news. So he says in verse three, so Jonah arose. That's good news. And he went to Spain again. No, he didn't. He changed his mind. This time he decided, hmm, tough to whip a storm and a fish. I think I'll just start walking east this time. So he rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Well, there's an interesting parallel here as Jonah gets up and starts to go east, northeast. It, there is a bit of a parallel to what we see Saul of Tarsus doing in the book of Acts chapter nine as he goes on the road to Damascus. It's the same general route, not the exact same direction, but close. Jonah's gonna go up there wanting for God to wipe out his enemies, but he's still gonna go and preach about their destruction. It says that Nineveh is a very great city. Now, what does that mean? It's just God loved it because of so many coffee shops and they had a gelato bar that was just lights out? No, but there's a lot of debate on this. It was just that it was very important to God because the Hebrew literally says a great city to God. So that's interesting. Is it that it's just really, really big? It takes three days to walk across or that it's really important to the heart of God or is it that it's a very sophisticated city? And actually, I take that it's all three. Now, it didn't really literally take three days to walk across Nineveh. Their interior wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high, but their circumference of it was only eight miles. So even if the cities were totally jam-packed with people and it included the suburbs and all the stuff, you could walk across it in less than three days, easy. 
That's not what's going on here. What's happening, it's a Hebrew expression. It says it takes three days to do your business. It takes a day to get inside, get settled, make your request to see the city leader or the king of the city-state, and then you do your business on the second day. On the third day, you finally depart. It takes three days to do all your political or formal affairs. That's how great the city was. And so that would have been understood to them in that day. The city's also, I think, great to God because it said it was full of violence, rah, evil, wickedness, and violence. But please understand, not everybody in the city was violent. There were a whole lot of people, I'm sure, that wondered if there even was such a thing as a God because their life was a living hell. If you were a family and you happened to have a baby and that baby was female, you just threw it out your front door. That was it. And then that baby was going to get picked up and raised to live an unspeakably horrible life. And there was violence against that child. If you had a slight deformity, you were just tossed out to die. And someone would pick you up and place you in some servile kind of condition that would be an absolute living hell. And so God's answering for their sake as well. Well, chapter 3, verse 4. Here we get the only prophetic word in the entire book. And it's quick. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Doesn't mean he was walking for an entire day. It's the first day when he's like a a formal ambassador. He gets sort of a diplomatic immunity because as a prophet of God in that culture, even in Assyria, a prophet who spoke for a God or for a king got a kind of diplomatic immunity for a time, not always. And so he goes in, asks to see the king, and they say, what for? And he begins to preach. Now, I have always maintained that one of the greatest sermons ever preached was Stephen in Acts chapter 7, what I call the king's speech. And Stephen walks all the way through the Old Testament explaining to Israel who they were supposed to have been and how they had failed and why they were now furious with Messiah who had come. And the sermon was so good that they picked up rocks and killed him, which is why I'm so glad I've never had a sermon that good. But Acts 7, one of the greatest sermons of all time. Listen to the sermon that Jonah preaches here in verse 4. And he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. So glad y'all are here this morning. Welcome. My name's Eric. In 40 days, you're all going to die. Amen. And that was it. It's the worst sermon ever. It's only five words in the Hebrew. There's not much there at all. Just five words. Now remember, 40 days doesn't always mean exactly 40. The wilderness wanderings when the children of Israel did not trust God should have been 40 years. It was actually 38. The 40 days of the ark floating with no, it was not exactly a 40. 40 is a designation to mean a period of judgment, waiting for impending judgment. It's, that culture would have understood 40 the same way we say, oh, there was a couple people over there. Well, there was four. Or we say there was dozens of people over there. Well, there was uh, two and a half dozen, whatever. It's just an expression. So it doesn't mean in exactly 40 days you're going to be destroyed. It's, hey, judgment's coming in about 40 days. And they would have understood that exactly. I'm so thankful for that little verse. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And there's a little interesting Hebrew nuance there. Is it destroyed? Yes. Or is it overturned? Yes. Or is it repented? Yes. The Hebrew expression is a little bit oblique there. They would have understood. Interestingly, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. It's such an astonishing way to start that. 
You almost expect verse five to say, after the worst sermon ever, 40 days, you're all gonna die. You expect verse five to be in different handwriting. Um, hi, everybody. My name's Shlomo. Because um, uh, they took Jonah and they killed him and then they tortured him and then they killed him again and then they dug him up and they tortured him and then they killed him again and then they said bad things about his mom to their friends and then they killed him again. So anyway, here's what happened. That's what you would kind of expect. No, the worst sermon ever. And they believed God because their hearts were open. Not because of what he said, but because of what God was doing in them and around them. And I'm so grateful for that. No sermon I have ever preached, no lesson I have ever taught has ever saved a single human soul. But praise be to God, many people have come to faith through my teaching, through your teaching, through your involvement, your leadership with others' lives, simply because God was doing a work. It's very much like Paul in Philippi in Acts 16 when he goes to Lydia and she's having a Bible study and Paul says, do you know what you're reading? She says, no. And he starts to explain it. She goes, yep, I'm in. Baptize me. He goes, wait, 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 wait. I wasn't finished preaching it. She goes, I get it. Baptize me. No, no, no. There's more to hear. There's more to hear. Paul, I got it. Stop it. I'm a believer now. No one had ever done that for these people. And so God's word struck them to the marrow and that's how it works. And so I'm so thankful. This little sermonette, you might say, was enough because God was in it. And so I used to say for the longest time, and I still believe this, that the character, the integrity of the one proclaiming the message, the one preaching, matters massively. And it still does. And failure in some capacity does not disqualify any of us from giving the gospel. Look at Jonah. He was a paid prophet of God, spoke to, heard from God, and ran away from him as if he could have. And yet God says, no, no, come on, back this way. I'm using you. You and I are not disqualified from giving the gospel. Stay the whisper of your enemy that calls you hypocrite. Yes, I have a sin nature. And yes, I am prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. But there is a God and he loves me. And the good news is he has redeemed me to himself in Christ and to all of these. Hush, devil, hush. You're never disqualified from giving the gospel. I love the little image of Jonah there. Well, verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. This thing went totally viral. Their conscience was pricked. All of them had a God-given conscience, Paul says in Romans 1. They didn't have to be told about the violence they were doing. They knew about their culture and about their society. And they knew there was a gross problem. And so they all immediately, all over the city, proclaim a fast. They don't eat anything. They tear their clothes. They put on sackcloth, a very rough, like, burlap. And they begin to mourn and to weep. And it goes all over the city, everybody. Well, verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And remember, all Jonah's done on day one was, you're all going to die. And it's changing the whole city. The king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is an abject display of humility, vulnerability, and availability to be changed, to have one's mind changed. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. Now you can survive a while without food. You got maybe 72 hours to not having to drink. So now the clock's ticking. Now we gotta hear from this God within about three days or we're gonna be in bad shape. But don't you know that animals are going, hey, 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 what did we do? 
Like, why? Don't bring me into this. But the creation is impacted by our sin. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But Proverbs 21.1 says that it is God who turns the hearts of kings like a river. This guy, when he heard it, didn't stand up and go, who does this guy think he is coming into my nation, my capital, my throne room? And No, he immediately, his heart's been readied by all the things that have been going on, superstitiously or whatever, and he repents. So Jonah has changed his mind. The people of Nineveh have changed their mind, all of them from the least to the greatest. Who knows, he says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then verse 10. When God saw what they did, he killed them anyway. No, 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 no. I'm so glad that is not in the Bible. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God changed his mind. God repented. See, God has a hair trigger for compassion. As we'll find out next week, it's precisely the thing Jonah was afraid of. I knew it! I knew you were God of compassion! I don't want compassion on those people. They're less than me. I don't want them to be recipients of mercy. But God, we should think rightly about this. God has a hair trigger for compassion. He relents. He does not destroy them. No, their actions do not earn God's reaction. He had decreed destruction and apparently the need and availability of repentance, and they believed God, and he relented. It's what he's told Abraham in Genesis 15. He, Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Well, what about the Ninevites? I don't think God credits it to them as righteousness, and we'll see why in just a little bit. So it sort of necessitates the question, well, were all those people in ancient Assyria, were all those Ninevites saved? Were they converted? Well, that's tricky. I don't know. But there's some evidence. For starters, the text says they believed God, but the word is Elohim. They believed Elohim. That simply means the gods. They didn't say we believe Yahweh and we call to the covenant-keeping name of Yahweh and we're all going to be circumcised and we're all going to keep the festal calendar of Israel, and we're all going to be, doesn't say that. They just believed the gods. So that seems a little bit incomplete. They certainly repented because of their conviction and their level of understanding, and God relented from destroying them, at least for then, at least for that near term. But evidently, they reverted to violence and wickedness and evil almost immediately. Just 40 years later from this time, Ju uh, yeah, June 7, 63 BC, just 40 years later, a generation passes, perhaps, they go down in full force and they utterly annihilate the 10 northern tribes of Israel. The 10 tribes are completely eradicated in 722 BC. They're carried off, never to return. Not only that, about 50 years after that, the prophet Nahum prophesies about the violence, the vulgarity of the people of Assyria and that God is going to judge them. And sure enough, Habakkuk begins to prophesy, Assyria, you great and mighty, you will fall, you will fall because of your violence. And sure enough, because of the preaching of Habakkuk and of Nahum, Assyria is completely obliterated in 612 BC by the Babylonians, interestingly. So were they saved? Were they converted? I don't know. 
There are those that say when Jesus says to the Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you, that must mean that they're still alive. I don't know that that's what Jesus is saying exactly. I don't know that. They believed Elohim. They did not believe God. So what are we supposed to take away from this narrative text? I want to remind us what Mark always says. Repentance is a party to which we are all invited. So why is this little book, Jonah? Why is this in our Bible? What are we supposed to take away? Well, three quick things. Number one, we have to be reminded that this is in the Bible because Jonah is reflective of and representative of the nation of Israel. It's God's way of saying to Israel, look at Assyria. They repented and I relented. Israel, how much more so if you would just repent of all of your debauchery and depravity, all of your evil and wickedness and violence. If you would just repent, I would relent. Israel never did. This is why Jesus says it to the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. If you would just repent, I've wept over you like a, like a mother hen over her chicks, but you won't have it. And something greater than Jonah is here. It's me. The Assyrians repented with Jonah, but you are Israel, and you won't even repent of all of your thoughts, words, and deeds of violence, even though I am here. So that's why it's a conviction of Israel. But not only that, the story of Jonah is in the Bible because those of us in the church age who are in Christ, who are in true Israel, we are never beyond the need of repentance. Our God is quick to compassion. He has a hair trigger for compassion. Repentance is a party to which we are all, always invited. It's also instructive for us eschatologically. That means for end times. There will come a time yet again when God will turn his gaze to Israel and they will face tremendous judgment and destruction if they would but repent, and it will take them a very long time. God will preserve them. But the book of Jonah is showing us the compassion of God and the depths of our own depravity and the availability of repentance. Repentance is a party to which we're all invited. So now let me give three quick principles to help this be portable for us as we walk out of here. Number one goes like this. God does not change. And I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. God changed his mind. God repented and God relented. God does not change. He does not and in fact cannot change. The one thing God cannot do is anything inconsistent with his existence. We call that his ontology or his character. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, God cannot ungod God. He can't do that. And yet, God can and does change his mind, but it's not because he gets new information or suddenly learns something that he didn't previously know. You can't teach him anything. He knows everything. He chooses, watch, watch, watch. He chooses to shift his gaze of judgment and justice and shine it elsewhere while showing mercy to the one or ones that originally deserved destruction. And he is no way obligated to do that. He does so because he is good and he does not change ever. He's always like that. And that's very good news and it is to be comforting to us. He is a God of a, with a hair trigger towards compassion. Secondly, God hates human violence. Well, duh. Of course he does. No, no, no. Let me explain. God hates human violence and we need to all make sure and recognize that we are all capable of it. Ultimately, that's the reason for the great flood of Genesis 6 and why God destroyed the entire world through the flood. Violence in humanity had become normative. And the image of God as walking around in individual human beings was being thrown down by human beings as if it was nothing. And so God says this in Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man, the, the rah 
of man was great in the earth and that the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now remember, violence, rah, in scripture is so much more than merely bringing physical pain against another human being. It is systemic, it is oppressive. Those who are strong bringing down or taking from those with little. Violence, it's social, it's systemic. Entire groups or populations are victimized by someone who's stronger or who has more uh, resources. Three different ways this works out, three different worldviews that produces this, and God hates human violence. Paganism inevitably leads to violence. You may think, well, paganism, that doesn't affect any of us anymore. Oh, yes, it does. St. Augustine was writing about the collapse and the crumbling of the Roman Empire. And he said, of course this is inevitably happening because Rome, you reject the existence of the one true God who is the giver of all truth, who is the establisher of what is good and right. And instead, you root your understanding of the universe in the gods, in the pantheon, and how they are always fighting with one another and how they're always fighting means that you on earth should always be fighting. It inevitably leads to violence where the gods are always competing. There's always a scarcity of resources. And so the people under the gods, they act the same way. Now, we would never, of course, revert to paganism, would we? No. Well, what were the people of Rome and Greece doing? They were simply following the leadership of the influencers of the day. But surely we have evolved as a species. We would not be watching people who are on flickering pixel screens and trying to simply follow them. And when we don't feel like we're making up, compare ourselves and get violent in our hearts and our words and our actions and our deeds. Paganism always leads to violence. Number two, secularism always inevitably leads to violence. If your greatest epistemological basis for understanding, that is, the way you come to know things, is simply science, what you can observe and measure in a material world, then we shouldn't be surprised when wars and violence and scarcity dominate our thinking and our feeling. That was Darwin's entire point, was it not? Might makes right, the survival of the fittest and the fastest, the weak die off and the strong survive. Yay! Unless you're weak. Unless you've got a, like a whole heart thing and then you're done. You're gone. If that's your worldview, it's not consistent. Nobody actually lives that way. And so it creates this contradiction and a conflict that, wait a second, we still have violence even though we should just be nice. Why? Why should you? The lion eats the gazelle. And if I'm a lion, I eat you the gazelle. And if you're a lion too, I just have to be a bigger, badder lion than you and then I take your stuff. It always produces violence. But there's a third source of violence, and we really get to read about this one next week in Jonah chapter four. Religiosity inevitably leads to violence. Forced ethics, moralism, behavior modificationism, legalism, all those kinds of things. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're watching a show or a TV or a news broadcast, and you see a particular population behaving in a particular way, and you just well up. You're just like, those people. And you wish them harm so that they would stop behaving that way and start behaving like I do. Do you know that physiologically, when we see something with which we agree, it literally is a dopamine drip. We get rewarded in our minds when we see something that we agree with. And when we see something we disagree with, it actually spikes our blood pressure. We are prone to violence. If we think we're better than anybody, like Jonah. Look at Jonah in the next chapter. He's like, I knew it. I wanted you to kill him, God. And then he says something shocking. Why don't you just kill me? Because I don't want to live in a world in which a God like you would show mercy to people like them. Why? Because they were gross. They were Gentiles. They were violent. They were immoral. He just wanted to be like him. 
Religiosity always leads to violence. I heard the other day someone say that all the wars of human history, all violence is always caused by religion. That is categorically and patently false. Religiosity can contribute to war, but not religion. Fundamentalism is fine. It's fantastic, actually, as long as your fundamental is the right thing. Call it Jesus. Look, the Amish, they are fundamentalists. They wear old clothes. They don't use electricity. But are you afraid of any Amish terrorists? Oh, no, there's Jedediah with a pitchfork. He's fine. He's fine. He, he's a fundamentalist. He's a religious guy, but he loves Jesus. But religiosity, where we're just trying to impose moralism, always and inevitably leads to violence. So, yeah. Is there any violence in your heart or mind or life or relationships about which you need to change your mind? Of course there is, and God is merciful. Repentance is a party to which we are all invited. Thirdly, we must always be willing to change. Jonah changed. The Ninevites changed. God relented. What about us? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to say that we're wrong? No. But everybody else, y'all should totally try that. Okay? Not we willing to change on the fundamental things like Jesus is Lord of all. He is my Savior. He paid the price that I could not pay and so that I would not die the death. All the, no, you're not going to change on that. Those are your fundamental bedrock essentials of understanding the Christian faith. But can you ever say that you're wrong about anything ever? We always have to be willing and ready to recognize that we're always going to be vulnerable and susceptible to sin and in our sin nature that we still carry, and we are also influenced and impacted by a fallen world. We are wrong about much, and we have the opportunity to cling ever increasingly to the truth that God is ever in the business of conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that means some things of my life need to get chiseled off, and sometimes that hurts. Some things need to get refined away, and sometimes that burns. Some things need to get simply cut away, and sometimes that's hard. We are to be transformed, not just a one-and-done experience. We are in the process perpetually of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's Paul in Romans 12. And that means feasting on God's word. It means prayer. It means the intentional engagement of Christian community. God is worth our willingness and readiness to change. Repentance is a party to which we are all invited. And then to nail it all down, look at Jesus. See, God hates human violence, and then look at Jesus. Look at the violence that he took on to himself so that you and I would never have to. Look at the violence that he took because you and I are sinners that sin and conduct violence against people that he loves, and he paid it all. Look how the Father, who never changes, but changes his mind. He shifts his gaze of judgment from us to his own Son, and then he decides, he shifts his gaze of love towards us and changes his mind and decides that we are righteous in his sight, even though we are decidedly and functionally not. What a grace, what a mercy. See, repentance is a party to which we're all invited. Party on. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be gathered together with these, your people. And we do pray, God, that you would continue the process of leading us into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, and a growing relationship with your son, Jesus. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who's still operating according to a pagan worldview or a secular worldview, would you give them the gift of grace 
that they would repent, that they would think differently about Jesus, that they would be persuaded that he is your son and he takes away the sin of the world. Would you usher them into life and light and love and out of death and darkness and defeat? For the rest of us, Father, would you treat us like Jonah? Would you give us grace? Would you keep us on mission to give the gospel despite our failings? To not look at others as inferior, but to see them the way you see them, to love them the way that you love them, to repent of our hatred, to repent of our superiorities, to repent of our attempts to change systems that only you can change. Father, thank you for Jesus, for what he accomplished, a better Jonah who loves people like Ninevites and East Texans and me. We love you, Father, because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, amen.